Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Ewings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Ewings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. This episode, I'd like to give a shout out to our Florida listeners. We appreciate you tuning into the Thriving Artist Podcast and recognize that you're known for fantastic artists like Jackie Bryce and Clyde Butcher. Now, our guest today is Eric Rhodes. Eric is the chairman, publisher, and CEO of Streamline Publishing, Inc., which publishes fine art connoisseur and plein air magazine. Eric Rhodes is a career entrepreneur with 30 years experience launching companies and media brands, over 40 years in the radio broadcasting field, 25 years in the publishing business, and a decade in the art industry. He serves as a consultant and advisor to companies in media, technology, digital media, and art, and Streamline Publishing produces several events for painters, including the annual plein air convention, Paint Russia, and the plein air salon art competition. Eric hosted the recent figurative art convention and expo in Miami earlier this month and is himself an avid painter. Welcome to the show, Eric. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Daniel. So, Eric, uh, can you take a minute to tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and your work? Oh, you know, I just love art, and that's pretty much it. I, I, uh, I, I was telling somebody just yesterday, I think I finally found my home. You know, by, by spending my life in and around the art world, um, I just feel like I'm the, the place I should be. So, I do a lot of things related to uh, art. I do some magazines, some conferences, some training videos, some podcasts. You know, I do a lot of different things that uh, are all about really helping people discover art, find uh, find it, learn about it, learn how to do it, and uh, get better at it. Now, of course, you're you're both a publisher and a plein air painter yourself. Which of those came first for you? Uh, publishing came first for me. I uh, I made my living as a publisher in the radio broadcasting industry. Um, I had started a radio trade industry magazine about 25 years ago, maybe a little longer than that. And um, when I started painting, my wife had bought me a lesson. I had I had actually gone to the art store, bought some materials, tried to do some painting, and and, and I was a disaster. My wife bought me a lesson. Um, that the lesson was a disaster. I ended up finding a guy who taught me how to paint. And, uh, so once I learned how to paint and it opened my eyes, I was painting, uh, copies of Bouguereau and old masters and so on. And, and it was something that really opened my eyes to art and I fell in love with it, became very passionate about it. And so one day I thought, well, I'll start a magazine. It really, it kind of started by saying, you know, my wife was pregnant with triplets and she said, you got to get the smell of the paint out of the house. Cause I was painting in the back bedroom. So I took all my paints and my card table and my big studio easel and a bunch of stuff out to the golf course to paint outside because I, I needed to be able to paint. I didn't know plein air painting existed. Um, it was a disaster. Anyway, long story short, I ended up plein air painting. And because I made my living as a publisher, I thought, well, I think it needs a magazine. So that's kind of how it started. Now, Eric, um, it seems like Fine Art Connoisseur and Plein Air Magazine fills sort of a, a niche or a gap or a hole in the market. Is that your perception? Is that why you created those publications? I, I didn't have that in mind. Um, I was not that sophisticated. I, I had in mind that, uh, first off, I was a Plein Air guy. I was learning Plein Air painting. I, I thought there were a lot of people who were doing it, and I thought it would serve the market well, because when I first got into Plein Air painting, I didn't know where to look, who to turn to, how to find lessons. Of course, the internet really wasn't around at the time. 
And so I wanted something that was kind of what I needed. And I thought if I needed it, probably other people would need it. So I, that's how I started Plein Air. And then uh, you may or may not know this, but Plein Air magazine had to stop publishing because we couldn't get any support. Everybody said, you know, this Plein Air movement is not very big. We couldn't get a lot of subscribers. We couldn't get a lot of advertisers. And so uh, I thought, well, the other passion I have is realism and realism painting. And and uh, so I switched it to fine art connoisseur. And the idea was something that was a little bit broader covered a little bit more area, and the hope was that I could get some gallery business as advertisers, and that worked. And so Plein Air Magazine was gone, um, and I just never felt comfortable with it. I heard from a lot of people who wanted it back, uh, so I kind of waited till the time was right, and I think it's been about seven years ago now. I brought it back, and of course, by then, the timing was right, and, and maybe we were a little better at doing what we do, and anyway, we were able to make it make it work. And so it, it was never as sophisticated as, gee, let's come up with something for a specific niche. It just was purely driven by passion. That point makes me want to ask two questions at once, and I'm, I'm torn between the two. So I'll, I'll just take them one at a time. So are we saying that figurative art is making a return? I don't think it ever left. But I, I do think that you know, with the rise of abstract expressionism, there's been a, a significant challenge for visual artists to sell their work, has there not been? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So figurative art never left, and realism never left, but it, it uh, almost died, uh, thanks to some uh, very brave souls who managed to continue painting and carrying on the techniques of the, uh, you know, the things that had been passed on from generation to generation. A few people, you know, people like uh, Bert Silverman and Max Ginsburg and, and others, those people continued to paint and they had a lot of problem because in the modernism era when, you know, it was really hard to make a living, they continued to do it. And so, uh, you know, it stayed alive, but it was really this resurgence, which kind of started with Richard Lack in Minneapolis. Uh, who started an atelier there to kind of teach the techniques of the old masters. And it started with people like Daniel Graves. Daniel actually had gone to Lack's atelier, and then uh, he started his own, of course, in Florence, Florence Academy. And then there were, of course, a couple other guys who started with him and now have their own schools. So these pioneers really kept it alive, and there wasn't a lot of interest. And then as things started changing, uh, interest kind of developed. So when I started Fine Art Connoisseur, I had uh, started it because I had fallen in love with a little magazine called Classical Realism Journal, which was no longer published. I bought every possible back issue, and it was not published because it wasn't popular. I mean, it, it you know, people weren't buying it. And so I was trying to learn how to be a realist painter, uh, a tight, kind of tight rendering realist and, and, and kind of an old master's style. And I thought, you know, this is what I would want. And so I didn't do it as an instructional magazine, though. I did it where we, we talked a lot about historical art, about contemporary artists, and we did a lot of features on the realists. At the time, I don't think there were three, maybe four ateliers in the world that at least I was aware of or places where you could learn this. Um, most of the colleges, most of the art schools had gone to abstract, um, modern. And so now, of course, we're seeing this resurgence. Um, I don't know if we were in the right place at the right time. I don't know if we had something to do with it, but 
Uh, we now have, of course, students of students of students who are having their own schools and ateliers, and there probably are a few thousand 20-year-olds who are studying how to do um, these techniques that were almost lost, and that's good news. And so from that standpoint, yeah, there's a resurgence. That's one of the reasons we started the FACE Conference Figurative Art uh, Convention Expo, because we felt like these people needed a home. We felt like they needed a, a chance to be together, to have kind of a common bond, to realize that the people uh, on other parts of the country, other, other sides of the world were going through the same kinds of things that they were going through. And that's the thing we heard most at the conference was that, you know, I thought I was alone. I thought I was fighting this battle in my studio alone. And I come here and I find, you know, my tribe. So what's it like to be a champion of representational art in an abstract age? Or, or do you even see yourself that way? I don't see myself as a champion. I, you know, I, I see that I have a very clear mission and that's try to help people in, in various forms of painting. And, and I, you know, I, I'm not anti abstract in any way. Um, I did a little of it in the early stages of painting and I didn't dig it very much. So I don't really look at myself as a champion as much as just a guy who's trying to figure out how to, how to give people some things that would be good for them and help them out. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. How do you answer that question? <laughs> well, let me try a, a little bit more random question. I still have one I'm holding back, but I, I want to try a little bit more random question on you. You know, uh, Jeff Koons recently um, started having the work of old masters uh, printed on fashionable handbags. And so in that sense, um, some of this uh, representational art or, or realistic art um, is seeing a, quite an odd resurgence. Uh, have you noticed that? And what do you what do you think about that? Well, it's been happening very gradually. Jeff, as you know, is a collector of old masters. Uh, several of the modernists have uh, collections of old masters. And then there are some uh, big influencers like Ralph Lauren, for instance, who seem to be bringing it back, uh, putting it out there in some of their advertising or in their stores. The big store in New York has these big images, these big paintings. And yeah, I, I think that it's just a matter of time. You know, all generations pretty much end up hating what their parents or their grandparents loved. And, uh, you know, what? what's interesting that's happening now is that we have this this sense, uh, I you know, certainly don't see it everywhere, but the sense uh, from young folks who say, you know, I don't get this modern stuff, this abstract stuff, the stuff that my parents liked or my grandparents liked. And uh, so to them, what this, this resurgence, if you will, of old masters style painting in a contemporary sensibility has become new and fresh. And what's interesting to me is that they are being criticized for doing something um, which is kind of considered, you know, very avant-garde and almost wrong by some people. And yet it's the exact same thing that happened, uh, you know, two generations before that when the modernists came out, uh, you know, in a world of old master style paintings or representational paintings. So it's, it's, kind, of, uh, it's kind of ironic. I think that um, I did a speech uh, at the convention, and one of the things that I said is that I believe that the the masters of today, you know, who are still relatively young, the you know the Jacob Collinses and the the uh, Graydon Parishes and people of that ilk, I think that those people are going to see a surge in pricing of their paintings. That um, you know Jacob might get a couple hundred thousand dollars or 
quarter of a million dollars for one of his paintings, but those are going to be the 40 and 50 and hundred million dollar paintings of the future. And the, the younger people who are following in their footsteps are going to have very fruitful and thriving careers in my lifetime. Knock wood, assuming I stay uh, alive long enough and certainly in their lifetime. And so uh, I think that this movement is really driven by doing something that's different, that's not uh, part of the mainstream. And of course, what's ironic again is that, um, you know, all the abstract stuff was not mainstream when it started, it was radical. Now, what these people are doing, what I'm doing, what others are trying to do is considered radical, but it's, it's going to become the mainstream. I really believe that. So Eric, uh, so many commercial print publications are folding, they're failing, they're floundering, or at least they're decreasing their publishing frequency, you know, going from monthly to quarterly and so on. How is fine art on a uh, connoisseur weathering this? Well, it's, um, it's true, but it's not entirely true. You know, there's some truth in that. If you go to a newsstand, a Barnes & Noble store, for instance, and look at the um, thousands of magazines that are still being produced, yeah, some of them are getting thinner. The ones that tend to be getting thinner are the ones that can be replicated easily online. What I mean by that, for instance, is, you know, like Time Magazine or Newsweek or something like that. I'm not sure Newsweek is even published anymore. But, uh, you know, people don't have to go to a print magazine to get their news anymore. But the magazines that continue to be strong are, are things like shelter magazines, like Architectural Digest, you know, where you're looking at pictures of people's homes. You want to do it in a leisure environment. Uh, it's very photocentric. And, and those things seem to be thriving. And our magazines continue to thrive. We have not seen a dip in subscriptions. We have a, a magazine in the radio broadcasting industry. We have a couple of them. And uh, we saw a dip there. Uh, we saw a pretty dramatic dip there, but we did not see that uh, in these areas. And I think it's because of that, you know, this is a very analog world when it comes to art. Art is analog. It's, you know, art looks better. First off, um, if you look at a, at a digital picture of a piece of art on your Facebook or your Instagram page, um, it looks good, but it doesn't look nearly as good as when you see it in print, which of course doesn't nearly look nearly as good as when you see it in person. I think this is one of the big challenges because we need to get people out there looking at art in person. Uh, we have a digital generation that's returning to analog. This is why vinyl is so hot. Uh, because vinyl sounds different and it's a different experience. And this is a digital generation that grew up not having those things. And so I want to see more people, you know, put their phones down and go out to museums and see this stuff in person, not because their phones are bad. I'm not suggesting that whatsoever, but because art, when you see it in person and you can see the texture or you could touch the texture, which of course you can't do in a museum, is a, is a completely different experience than just looking at an image. What freedoms do independent magazines like yours enjoy that commercial publications don't? For instance, uh, can you break certain you know established protocols? Well, how do you define commercial publications? Well, that's fair. Um, so I would say you know it's a little bit like top forty music versus you know indie rock. Um, you know, certainly it's commercial, but let's say less mainstream, you know, or, or is that, how would you, how would you, what taxonomy would you use to characterize it? Well, 
uh, let me let me put it in a different uh, perspective, maybe. So if I owned a magazine company and I had to go out and uh, go public and meet quarterly numbers, uh, or if I had a big board of directors and I was funded by venture capital firms or funded by private equity firms, they would be breathing down my neck every single quarter and saying, um, your expenses are too high, cut your expenses. You're not making enough money, cut your expenses, cut your paper quality, cut your costs, uh, cut the number of pages that you're gonna do, things like that. Um, I think the, the big difference for us is that um, we live what we do. Um, I always had a motto when I started my businesses that I would never do anything that I didn't love. You know, I could probably make money uh, with a plumbing magazine, but I don't love plumbing. Uh, as a matter of fact, I hate plumbing. <laughs> so I think that, you know, the big thing is that um, I, I keep my paper quality high. I, I am publishing things in super high quality using more expensive printers, uh, doing things that uh, probably make a huge difference. Somebody um, I was talking to at one time said that, uh, you know, that uh, I could make a lot more money if I would cut my paper costs. I could, you know, I could cutting paper costs might be, you know, $200,000 a year, uh, which for us would be like a gold mine. I mean, we just, you know, we're not big money makers. And, you know, so it's like a consultant or, a, or a, uh, an accountant or somebody said that. And, and they said, well, so why don't you do it? I said, because it's not the same product. If I, if I have that thin, flimsy paper and it doesn't feel quality, I want people to feel the quality. You know, this is, again, it's analog. I can touch that paper. It's thick. I can have a thick cover stock. They said, well, you don't need a thick cover stock. I said, yeah, I do. And, and the difference is that I don't owe anybody any money. Uh, I don't, I didn't go out for private funding. I don't have any investors. It's me. And if I screw up, I'm out of business. I can't feed my family, but it's not all about money. If it were all about money, then I'd be cutting the paper. I'd be cutting the number of employees. I'd be cutting the, the quality of the employees, right? You know, there's a, uh, a publication that just recently let go some very, very good people uh, because they were too expensive. And, and, you know, that corporation is trying to save money. It's like, yeah, but they had 20 years experience. They know everybody They you know, they bring a lot to the table. Well, they, you know, they cut them. And so I, I look at it from the standpoint of, you know, I'm not saying I'm not trying to make money. I do try to make money, but you know, the magazine business for me is not a big money maker, but I love doing the magazines. I'm passionate about these types of art. You don't see me launching a modern art magazine. You know, I don't think I probably ever would, even though I'd probably make more money because it's a bigger marketplace, but it's something about doing the right thing. Applying this to visual artists, um, you know, you've got a niche, you've got uh, an area where um, it isn't mainstream or top 40 uh, country, if, if we want to characterize it that way. Uh, does that tell us anything about, is there anything we can learn from that, uh, from the standpoint of a visual artist marketing their own art? Uh, meaning, is there a requirement um, for a niche to be, really be successful um, and to carve out a a place in longevity because I mean you're you're underscoring the fact that many of the publications that are gone are um, or at least were mainstream 
Well, there's a lot of niche publications. I don't mean to correct you, but there are a lot of niche publications that are gone too. I, I, I think that, you know, there's a slippery slope there. I teach marketing. I have um, marketing classes that I give at the plein air convention. I gave a talk on marketing at the figurative art convention. I have a series of uh, videos that I teach marketing. And I think the thing, the slippery slope is that, you know, marketing can accomplish anything, almost anything except for uh, good painting. And it can, and it can accomplish, uh, uh, you know, we've all seen artists who we don't understand why they're making so much money and why they're succeeding because we, we don't respect the art that they're making. And so marketing can in fact accomplish selling bad stuff. I mean, you see it on TV every day, right? Ronco this and, and, you know, you see a lot of, a lot of junk that a lot of people buy because of marketing. Marketing doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be evil. But I think the slippery slope is that, you know, some, I, I think every artist needs to paint what they, what they are passionate about and what they love. And yeah, there are people who are passionate about certain niches. And, you know, some people want to paint horses all day long and because they love horses. Uh, somebody wants to paint dogs because they love dogs. But if somebody is doing it just for the paycheck, then it's a slippery slope. Now, I, I think there are exceptions to that. So, for instance, if I'm trying to make it as an artist and I don't have a job and I have to go out and clean toilets for $10 an hour, would I rather do that or would I rather paint something I know is going to sell because at least I'm painting? I think I'd rather paint something that's going to sell because if I can make the same amount of money or more money uh, getting through a, a rough patch until I'm more established in other things, then I think it's okay to do that because I, quite frankly, I'd rather paint something than clean toilets. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not trying to belittle anybody who does that. Um, we all have times and believe me, I, I was a janitor. I worked for a janitorial service and I did clean toilets and I did take out people's trash at office buildings. And I worked as a, as a guy in a factory um, making cement trucks and welding. And, you know, I realized very quickly there were things that I didn't want to do and that those were things I didn't want to do, but I don't want to belittle that. We all have to do things that we don't want to do. Uh, but I, I think in general, you know, the gallery says, uh, Eric, paint more of those little red barns because they sell really well. You know, there you, you have to follow your heart. And if you have to make a living, there are sacrifices you're going to have to make, but you also have to follow your heart. And if your heart's not in it, you shouldn't do it unless it's absolutely critically necessary for survival. So I want to take a moment and just say to the audience that if you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. And a portion of our funding goes also to deliver direct education to artists who've demonstrated a clear, achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. So share this commitment with us now at clarkhealingsfund.org donate. We'd certainly appreciate it. Uh, now, Eric... Is technology a second lease on life for publications like Fine Art Connoisseur? And I ask that because, um, and I, I don't think this was always the case, but I can get either a digital or an electronic version of it or a print version of it now. Oh, wow. A second lease on life. You, you ask pretty good questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, 
I don't know. I mean, you know, it, it kind of goes back to this idea of analog versus digital. Um, I love digital. I, I, you know, I have an iPad, I have a, a 4k screen on my computer. I, and I look at a lot of images on digital and once in a while I'll use a photograph for a painting, although not very often I try not to. And I just think that in some ways, some things are better than others. You know, I like to be able to hold up that print and look at it, but I also like to be able to look at that same image on my iPad and, and increase the size and look at how they painted the eyes and look at the high resolution on it. I, I can do things with digital that I can't do with print. For instance, Plein Air Magazine, um, in our digital edition, we have about 15 or 20 additional pages that we don't do in the print because, you know, print is very expensive and it's not unusual for us to spend a fortune to print those magazines, but usually there's more stuff that we can't put in print because it's just not practical to add 10 or 15 more pages because that might cost you an extra, you know, 50 or hundred thousand dollars. And so in the digital editions, we try to give people a benefit for subscribing to those. And so we, we give them more content. So, um, let's say that we're doing a story on, um, Kevin McPherson, the plein air painter, uh, who's going to be at the, at the convention speaking. And so I could, I could do, um, you know, maybe I can only do three pages and, and five images, uh, in the story in plein air magazine, cause I don't have enough space to do everything I want to do, but I can expand the story in the digital edition and do 20 paintings, 20 images. And you can look at those images and you can blow them up. So, you know, I don't know if it's a new lease on life. It certainly is a beautiful thing to be able to do that. We have uh, readers around the world who buy the digital editions because they don't want to wait for the mail because, you know, you mail something to the UK or to India or someplace, you know, it takes a few weeks. And that way they can get it instantly. We have a, a very high percentage of our subscribers actually subscribe. We have these packages where you can buy both. And, um, most of them subscribe to both because that way they can look at it. They can get a, you know, a handle on the publications. They, they have them on their iPads. So if they're in a car trip or an airplane or something, they're always there. And then, you know, when the, the print comes in, they have a chance to look at it. They can fold a page over, they can rip a page out, they can put it in a file. You know, there's a lot of stuff they can do with it. So I think they, each thing has its own surf, uh, purpose that it serves. Well, let me ask you uh, a related question. So we find con fine art connoisseur. One of the ways we find it is online. Uh, even if we ordered the print version, uh, if it wasn't for the website and the ability to find and subscribe to that thing online, I don't know how I would do it um, because I don't necessarily get handed a, a print copy, you know, or, or find it in every newsstand. So if we apply that to um, visual artists and their marketing is we see gallery attendance decreasing and visual art sales online are increasing even for the big auction houses uh, do you think that um, digital is perhaps the the immortality drug for for marketing visual art as well as for marketing publishing well immortality drug for the moment maybe um, look what we're doing today uh, digitally and online will be old tomorrow and, you know, there will be something completely different and new that'll be invented in two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Somebody will disrupt everything that's being done and come out with something that's completely different and better. 
Um, it, yeah, I mean, I, I think as an artist, um, you have to play all the angles. Um, you have to meet people where they live. And there are some people who fully live in a digital world and some people who want to walk into a gallery. And and maybe they do both. Um, you know, I, I think pretty much everybody is digital these days. And my dad is 90 years old and he's as tuned into his iPhone as I am. Um, but I, I think, you know, there there's some who are not, clearly. But, you know, as an artist, you have to you have to become kind of a master of all things because, you know, the, the problem is that there's this belief that if you put it online, you're going to sell a lot of art. And it's just not true. It can be true, but you don't ever want to have everything relying on a single pillar. You know, if you imagine a Parthenon with a single pillar holding up the top, you know, if something comes along and knocks that pillar down, I'll give you a really great example of that. A friend of mine used to be in the infomercial business and he was making millions and millions of dollars. And one day he gets a call and says, uh, Congress just passed a new law about infomercials. We can't do this anymore in the way we've done it. One day his multi-million dollar business came crashing down on something they thought would last forever. I think that you know, just because you put something out there online doesn't mean it's going to sell. There's a whole strategy that goes with marketing and there's a whole strategy that goes with branding. An artist really has to find ways to make themselves well-known, respected, um, put into a place of, uh, I don't like the word celebrity quite so much, but put into a place where they, um, they are kind of well-known because the more famous you become, no matter who you are or what you do, the more famous you become, the more you're going to sell, the more your prices are going to go up. This is all about branding. And that needs to be done in a lot of places. But the assumption by far too many is because I put my images out on social media or because I put my images out on a website, uh, that has not necessarily anything to do with selling. It can uh, I certainly have had people randomly uh, find a, a picture I put out on Instagram and I've, I've sold a painting, but it's few and far between. It happens for some more than others. I think that one has to focus on strategy instead of tactic. Um, tactic is, uh, you know, the thing you're going to do. Strategy is the plan on how you're going to get well-known and how you're going to get people to respect you and how you're going to get people to to buy your work. And you know, it's a loaded question. I mean, I spend literally days and days and days teaching these, these concepts because they, you know, they really take a lot of time to understand. But clearly digital is a beautiful thing. And I am not anti-digital at all. I don't know what's going to happen to the gallery world. I think the reason that a lot of galleries are, are falling right now is because they have not kept up there was a sea change in the way things are done for galleries. Uh, a lot of people want to do things the way they used to do them. A lot of people kind of lost the eye of the tiger and are not doing the things that made them successful in the first place. People, when they start having hard times, they start cutting back. And sometimes when they cut back, they hurt themselves more because they can't do as many shows or they can't do get the right uh, artists or they can't write, get, do the right things for their collectors, you know, the parties or whatever. And sometimes those things matter. Um, the, clearly, the digital world has impacted the auctions. It's impacted the way everything sells. And as uh, more and more money uh, from younger people moves into the market, it's going to be inevitable that's going to continue. 
you know, I have a, a really good friend who's an internet superstar. He's probably going to be a billionaire if he's not already. And he's fallen in love with art and he buys almost all of his art on, uh, on an auction site. And uh, he's buying antique art on an auction site. I don't know if he's ever even set foot into an art gallery. Um, but I also know people who will not buy a piece of art until they can see it in person. So sometimes it's a matter of a gallery being willing to mail it, uh, test it out. Sometimes a gallery will fly somebody in to look at a piece of art. Uh, so there's a lot of options on that. So let's go back to this idea of branding. Um, you know, you talk about the need for an artist to make a name for themselves, to become well-known, to become almost like a celebrity. And yet some artists are told by their galleries, do not become the face of your brand. That's the gallery's job. In fact, they're told to take any photos of themselves off their website, keep their bio uh, crisp and short and not detailed, and let the gallery do the marketing. Uh, and we know quite a few artists who are told they are not the face of their brand, that um, that'll get you blacklisted with galleries, that, that the gallery wants to control the output. And so, you know, in any other business context, an entrepreneurial um, advisor would say that that's a recipe for staying small. You know, you've got the middleman sort of saying, I will be the pipeline and the conduit to you. And and you need to have at best a one page website that links to the gallery. And even that's questionable. <laughs> you know, what what's your take on this conflict between or, or apparent conflict between the need to brand, make a name for yourself, become that um, celebrity and uh, the demand by some galleries that they are the sole voice? Well, it's a choice, isn't it? You know, it it comes down to. Um, first off, most of the people who are listening to this and most of the people who are selling art are not in art galleries. And some of them want to be and are not. Some of them don't have the opportunity to be yet. And so the problem is that if you are an artist and you lose control of your career, you can kill your career very fast. I, I have um, a friend of mine who was in a very very important, prominent gallery. He spent two years working on a show. Uh, he was very excited about it. He was counting the money. Uh, everything was going great. Um, he was told not to put his brand out there in any way. He was very, you know, very controlled by that gallery. And then three weeks before the show, the gallery picked up the phone, called him, said, we changed our mind. We're not going to do the show. And by the way, you're out of the gallery. So what was he to do? he had put all of his eggs into that basket. And, you know, I think it's a difficult scenario. And again, it comes down to a choice because if you've got a good gallery who is insisting on this, then I think it's a really good idea as long as they're willing to promote you, as long as they're really going to make things work, as long as your artwork is selling. Um, but we've heard so many stories from so many people who have been ousted from galleries without notice or who have been controlled by a gallery that suddenly has, has gone away or gone out of business. And, and I don't blame the galleries for doing it. And, and by the way, I think that anytime an artist violates the relationship with a gallery, it's, it's a recipe for disaster for their career because everybody knows everybody and everybody talks. Uh, I was in a gallery in, uh, uh, in a big art city, the gallerist I was there to meet with was taking, he was talking to me and he was taking some paintings off of a wall and 
and throwing them in a box. And I said, what's going on here? He says, oh, well, uh, this was one of my best-selling artists. And um, a man came in here, wanted to buy a painting from this artist. And uh, I wouldn't, he didn't like the price I gave him. So he left, huffed off. He called me back three weeks later and said, I bought it direct from the, from the uh, painter, bought it for half the price. And so, you know, you're screwed, so to speak. And so the, the art gallery uh, had received a call from the artist who said something like, you know, I decided I want that painting back. I want to work on it a little bit more or something, some lie. So he sent the painting back and, and then, of course, had found this out. So he took all the paintings down, shipped them to the artist and said, we're not doing business with you anymore. That artist lost because of her short-term thinking. You know, she, she wanted an opportunity to sell this person. What she should have done is called the gallery back and said, listen, maybe I'll cut my commission a little bit to get this sold or something so we can get this done but never violate the, the gallery. So I know I'm off topic there, but I, I think that, you know, everything boils down to choices. I personally don't like the idea of being in a single gallery and being controlled by a single gallery, but some people do it and it works for some people. I know a very famous artist who's in one gallery, that gallery makes him a lot of money. And as long as that's happening, that's okay. The, the second though, that you get that phone call and you've put all your eggs into that basket, that's when you have a problem as an artist. And so I like to encourage people to, to try if possible to have more than one. And yeah, I think you, you know, you don't sell direct if, if you're in a gallery, unless you have a special arrangement of some kind, uh, because, you know, I have a friend who he sells some paintings that are under a certain price direct uh, but most galleries won't tolerate that, and I don't recommend it. So galleries are very important. I think artists miscalculate the importance of galleries. And, you know, a gallery is essentially a curator. They're out there looking for the best artists. They're out there looking for the best quality. They really understand what's going on. They can help and aid collectors and keep them from buying, hopefully, bad stuff. Sure, there are galleries that sell bad stuff, too, and there are galleries that cheat people, but that's not most most of them. And as a result, you have this someone who is a market maker and, and, gal and artists are like, well, you're taking 40% or 50% or whatever. And yet these people are developing relationships and, and advertising and bringing people in and they're working hard in most cases for the artist. And I like the idea of having somebody who sells my work when I'm sleeping. I have a gallery for my art and, you know, I'll, I was out um, painting on a river one day. And I got a, a call from my gallery and they said, hey, we just sold this painting, thought you'd want to know. And it's like, this is cool. I'm out painting. I wasn't working it. I wasn't selling anything. And they were working for me while I was playing. And so I think there's a, a real value. I, I think that it would be a tragedy if the art gallery business ceases to exist. And first off, I don't think it will cease to exist. The ones that are failing, the ones that are going away are the ones who are not keeping up for the most part, not paying attention to what's going on in the world and not being contemporary, if you will, in terms of how to operate their businesses. Everything changed uh, after 2008. 2008, we not only had an economic crash, we had the internet really started taking hold. And so things are constantly changing. You have to keep up on it and it's tough, but art galleries do play a very important role. Yeah, I don't think we, um, I don't think we're talking about 
visual artists uh, doing an end run around the gallery and selling direct and cutting out the gallery's commission. Um, that certainly is a recipe. That's just, you know, any kind of business dishonesty or business ethics violation is a recipe for disaster. But um, what we see mostly, and in fact, we do see artists that um, do sell direct, um, despite having a gallery, and um, very often they sell different art that the gallery doesn't want. Um, the only conflict they run into is when the gallery says, um, we're not going to sell that art, but, um, but you can't sell it either. Or we only sell paintings, um, we know you want to sell uh, prints or you want to sell uh, other formats of art, such as uh, sculpture or whatever, but we don't want you to do that and we don't want to sell it either, and it sort of shorts the, shuts the artist down. So that's one of the, the areas we find is the gallery not taking all the work but demanding that, that not all the work be sold. Another that we see is the gallery saying, not don't do an end run, don't sell, but don't put yourself out there. The, you know, galleries have very often a limited uh, marketing strategy and marketing fund and a lot of other artists, um, but very often artists are being told, we don't want you to get press, we don't want your picture out there unless we arrange it. Um, so they're actually being told to cancel their Facebook accounts, take their picture off their website. That isn't doing an end run, that's more like we need you to be an unknown. And what the artists typically, um, uh, the, the complaint that we hear a lot of is that that turns the artist into sort of a commodity producer who, like a factory, who produces work behind the scenes but isn't allowed to become known for it? Well, um, I think that, again, it boils down to a choice. You know, if that gallery that has these onerous terms is making you a lot of money and that money is important to you, uh, then I see absolutely nothing wrong with it. And uh, I think that, you know, gallery people have their reasons and some of them are probably very good and they, uh, galleries tend to understand branding and, and marketing. Um, the problem of course, is that you do have high vulnerability if they decide to fail or if they decide to stop supporting you or if they're not selling, et cetera. I, I know artists and I'm sure you do too, who have pseudonyms who sell their work through other galleries. They have pseudonyms, they sell their work on eBay, um, uh, because they're looking for ways to, to get, get some additional income. But if, if a gallery is producing for them, then again, that's the choice. I think that uh, the world has changed so much, it's going to be harder and harder for galleries to operate that way because everybody today wants to be able to research. You know, you want to look at a Wikipedia page, you want to look at pages that, that have the artist. That doesn't necessarily mean that artist needs to, to go around the gallery. But you do have, um, you, you know, I, I don't want anybody else in charge of my brand. I, you know, I like the idea of being able to control who sees what. I like the idea of building it up. There's nothing wrong with building your brand and directing somebody to the gallery and controlling it a little bit. But if everything's controlled by that gallery, then um, you're, you're in a high vulnerability position. And, you know, again, it's okay. I mean, I, I have a friend who's making uh, literally millions of dollars with one single gallery that gallery does a show of his work about every two years and uh it's a lot of big paintings and they sell for a lot of money and there's high demand and this person is not in any other gallery does not sell direct 
and he's living the dream because he's got all the money he he can he's ever imagined and that's great and probably what will happen is if somebody is ever foolish enough to push him out of the gallery for whatever reason maybe because he's not hot anymore or maybe he's not selling anymore then uh, hopefully there's somebody else who will be jumping at the chance to do the same thing for him but um you know it's it's a choice let me ask you a, a somewhat different question on another topic. Um, you, you put out quite a bit of digital media, not counting the magazines, but also newsletters. In fact, I think you write a newsletter that um, goes out daily, or at least you uh, are a contributor writer to it. And in your newsletter, you write about running ideas past your team before diving into a big project. Um, so I'm interested in... Um, whether or not you feel it's important to cultivate and sort of surround yourself um, with some sort of, of power team or, um, or dream team of effective individuals, and whether or not, um, as an ancillary question, you um, think that's an imperative uh, for a working artist to sort of develop uh, an effective dream team around themselves or at least some sort of collaborative environment. Well, there's a, whether you're a spiritual person or not, there's, there's something that's in the Bible that says there's wisdom in multiple counselors. And I'm pretty good at what I do, and I think a lot of people out there listening to this are pretty good at what they do. But um, I make a lot of mistakes. I make a lot of bonehead moves. I, I do a lot of things that are, that are not good. I don't mean not good from an ethical standpoint, but, you know, you, you have to be kind of in the middle of following your gut and having a, a, a bunch of people that you can rely on. You know, one of the hardest things for a painter, for instance, is to know if what you've produced is good. You may think it's good and somebody else may think it's not good. And um, I have a, a particular painter who's a good friend of mine that um, when I'm stuck on something, I'll send him a snapshot on my phone and I'll say, hey, something's not right about this painting. I can't figure out what am I doing wrong. And he can see it clearly and differently than I can see it. And I've surrounded myself with some really great people, um, both as mentors, uh, consultants, friends and of course people who are on my own team and i throw things out to these people and i look for their take on it and i listen very carefully um, sometimes i don't listen and sometimes i get myself in trouble i'll give you a really great example it's there was a uh, an auction house magazine that had a, a high subscription and it was a very expensive magazine and I wanted to uh, use it as a means of driving some subscriptions to Fine Art Connoisseur. And the ad was, I think it was like $18,000 or something. It was just ridiculously expensive. And I, so I called uh, one of my top guys and I said, listen, I think we can, I've got this ad concept. I think we can drive some, some subscriptions with this and I'm gonna spend $18,000 on this ad. And he says, you're freaking nuts. Don't do it. You're not, it's not going to work. You know that you, you, how many of those ads can you run? I said, well, I can only afford to run one. And he said, you, in your own marketing classes, you teach frequency, you teach the importance of repetition. You say never just buy one because one never works and you're going to do it. And you're going to throw your money right out the door. And I listened to him and I said, nope, he's wrong. I spent the money. And I sold a grand total of two subscriptions 
that was basically $9,000 per subscription. And I felt like a complete fool, but you know, I got caught up in it. What the, you know, what I should have done is I should have listened and I try very carefully to listen. Sometimes I override things and, and, uh, sometimes I'm right. Let me give you a couple of opposite examples of that. I went to my team and I said, I think we should do a convention called the plein air convention. And, um, I think, you know, it could be very successful and they're like, well, but we don't have the money. And if you spend the money and it doesn't work, we're going to be bankrupt. And, and I listened and my gut said, you need to go for it. So I went for it and, you know, it's turned out to be uh, a pretty successful event. I think we're going to have well over a thousand people at the next one. And the same thing with the figurative art convention. It was kind of like, yeah, it's risky. Don't spend the money. And because, you know, you launch a convention or something like this. I mean, it can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, you know, we don't have that kind of money laying around. So if we screw up, you know, we have to literally have to sign a contract to buy all the hotel rooms Mm -hmm. in a hotel. And at, you know, $199 a night or whatever it is times uh, three nights or four nights times five or 600 rooms, it runs into a lot of money. And if we're wrong, we're in trouble. And we got in trouble like that one time because we were wrong. I, I did a, a radio convention and um, we booked with a major hotel and everything was fine and we thought it was going to go great. And then the economy crashed and we got stuck having to pay for hotel rooms. And, you know, it was going to be years for us to pay that off. So you have a fine line. So you have to follow your gut and you also have to listen to people and you have to make sure that you listen to people who, you know, uh, people who are good counselors, you know, like I have, um, my wife is, uh, extremely intuitive. She's got great instincts. I can, I can rely on those instincts. I can even have her come out and look at a painting, even though she's not a painter, she'll tell me re- exactly what's wrong with it. So I surround myself with people that are good, but, you know, there are other people I would never ask their advice. I love them. I respect them, but maybe they don't know anything about the particular subject. And so I think that the same thing is true for artists. You, you want to surround yourself with, um, you, you know, at least two or three people that you can rely on because, you know, we all get these crazy ideas and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. Sometimes you're going to have to be convinced you're going to go for them no matter what, even, even if you get negative feedback, but it's at least you're, you're considering things that you might not have otherwise seen. Uh, Every day I make decisions about things in my business and in my life. And I try to get input and sure enough, somebody will say, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or had you thought about this? And I go, wow, I didn't think about that. And, uh, I was going to go into a business one time and I had this great idea and, uh, I was getting ready to launch it. And somebody that I tested it on said, well, but did you realize that you'd be competing with your advertisers? Never even crossed my mind. So I immediately put the stop on it because I, I refused to compete with my advertisers. It's one of my, you know, one of my standards that I just won't violate. And, and I just was so close to the, the subject that I hadn't even realized that that's what I was doing. So you just need people to point things out to you. So Eric, what's next on the horizon for you? Uh, you know, I just never know until it just kind of pops into my little bit, little bitty pea brain. (laughs) So, um, I'm working on, I can't really talk much about it, but I'm working on a, 
a project with a major media organization. I have this really insane goal, and that is that I want to teach more people to paint. The goal I set for myself is to to start out by saying I want to teach a million people to paint because my life changed when somebody taught me to paint. I started seeing light and color and shape, and I started thinking like an artist, and um, I, I my stress went away. Um, I, everything in my life got better when I became an artist, and I want that for other people. I'm not suggesting that everybody become an artist for a living. That's a whole different animal. Uh, but I like the idea of teaching people. And the one thing that I've realized is that the biggest problem, the biggest barrier for most people of learning art is their own self-confidence. You know, I'll be out painting. I remember I was in Santa Fe painting and uh, this couple came up to me and, and she said, you know, I just love what you're doing and I wish I could do that, but I, I can't draw a stick figure. I, you know, I can't draw anything. I don't have any talent. And I turned to her and I said, listen, here, here, if, do you mind? I'd like to show you a couple things. And she said, sure. I said, here, hold my brush now here. And I, I said, can I hold your hand while I hold the brush? And she said, sure. I said, okay, we're going to dip it in like this. And I dipped it in. And I said, now here's, we're going to make this brush stroke. And I said, now just lay that down like that. And I held her hand and I showed her. And then I said, okay, now we need another one right there. And I pointed, I said, you do it yourself this time. And we did three or four brushstrokes. And I said, do you see how much difference you made in that painting just with what you did? And she lit up like a Christmas tree. And I said, look, you, you know, learning to paint is not difficult. It's a simple process. You, if you learn a process, you don't have to have talent. Talent may enter into it at some point, but for you to be happy doing paintings for yourself, you can do this now. And I gave her encouragement and I showed her, you know, I gave her some websites and told her where to go to learn and some things. And that woman walked away convinced that she was going to do it. And so I'm really focusing on what can I do to really make the process feel as though you can do this. You and I both know that it takes a lot of time. It's a, a process, but you have to put in the time. You have to put in the brush strokes, the mileage. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. For more information on Fine Art Connoisseur magazine, visit fineartconnoisseur.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. And to sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Eric. It's been really great having you. Thank you. I appreciate it.